This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn more about Reynolds' online retailing approach by visiting reyrey.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y.com slash retail anywhere. Welcome to Daily Drive for Wednesday, August 24, 2022. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. Today on the show, the head of Group One is retiring. The FTC won't allow more time to comment on car selling rules. And U.S. Bank says it's ready to fund auto loans instantly for more dealers. Plus, a conversation with newly elected president of Unifor, Lana Payne, about the future of Canada's largest private sector union and about being the first woman to serve in that role. It's about time our workplaces are changing, and I think my election obviously is a reflection of that. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. The CEO of one of the largest auto dealership groups in the U.S. will retire at the end of the year. Group One's Earl Hesterberg joined the company in April 2005 after working with automakers, including Ford and Nissan. The public dealership group's current president of U.S. operations, Daryl Kenningham, will succeed Hesterberg. Group One has named Kenningham the company's president and COO effective immediately, and he'll move into the CEO role on January 1st. Group One shares were little changed Wednesday afternoon. They've gained more than 12% this year among the best-performing auto retailer stocks. In other retail news, the Federal Trade Commission is shooting down the National Automobile Dealers Association's request for more time to comment on the FTC's proposed dealer regulations. The new rules are meant to crack down on unfair or deceptive advertising as well as finance and insurance practices. NADA acts for a minimum 120-day extension in the 60-day public comment window. It cited a lack of advance notice or time to prepare for the rule. The FTC unanimously rejected the request, and the comment period will end on September 12th as planned. As of yesterday, the commission had received about 2,400 comments on the new rules. While some dealers are worried that the new FTC rules will slow down their sales process, here's something that might help. U.S. Bank says it's ready to extend real-time payments to more retailers. It says it can pay more than 800 dealerships instantly after finalizing an auto loan. A U.S. Bank spokesman says the network includes both single-store dealerships and multiple location retailers. U.S. Bank said it finished a pilot version of the program in June. This year, U.S. Bank also introduced a variant of the real-time payment program to users of Lithia Motors' digital retail platform, Driveway. The bank says consumers who sell their vehicles to the national dealership group now can be paid in seconds instead of the traditional 24 to 48 hours for digital ACH transfers. And here's a possible big move with global implications. Honda is considering building a separate supply chain that would reduce its dependence on China. That's according to the Sankei newspaper in Japan. Many big Japanese companies have built extensive production hubs in China, but they've recently seen output snarled by COVID-19 lockdowns. There are also deepening worries about the impact of political tensions between the U.S. and China. Nearly 40% of Honda's automobile production took place in China in the last financial year. 
Sankei reports that Honda would continue to keep its supply chain in China for the domestic market, while building a separate one for markets outside of China. Sankei did not say where it got the information. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, with Honda considering building a separate supply chain outside of China, should they be worried about China possibly pushing back? It's definitely a risk, right? Uh, China keeps a very tight grip on industrial policy. But under the current circumstances, production has been very limited by the COVID lockdowns and, and China's zero COVID policy. So uh, it may provide a little relief to their economy in the short term. And it's not a full pullout. They're keeping their factories there, their assembly plants there, and they'll keep supplying them there. But Honda's top market for sales and profitability is the U.S. It really needs to stay its priority while trying to avoid messing things up in China. Coming up. Lana Payne is taking over leadership of Unifor, which represents workers at GM, Ford, and Stellantis in Canada. We'll hear about her vision for the country's largest private sector union and about being the first woman to serve in that role. That's next on Daily Drive. Customer wants to sign documents remotely? No problem. Customer wants to provide documentation and their driver's license in person? No problem. Customer wants to have their vehicle delivered? No problem. There are a lot of steps to complete a car deal, but what happens when customers start online and end in store, or vice versa? You need a seamless, consistent process to start work and finalize every vehicle purchase, no matter where the customer is. Chris Walsh, president of Reynolds & Reynolds, explains how. Retail Anywhere is, is powered by the retail management system. So the retail management system is the engine you know, that kind of makes this all work. And it's based on the premise that customers can be anywhere, right? They can be in store, they can be at home, they can be a hybrid of both. It doesn't really matter, but it's a single process of interacting with that customer. And that's, you know, really important to be consistent in that way. And it's only achievable through a single system like the retail management system. Regardless of where the customer is buying from and how, Retail Anywhere focuses on streamlining dealership operations and improving profitability. For more information about this holistic approach to digital retailing, visit rayray.com forward slash retail anywhere. That's reyrey.com slash retail anywhere. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Canada's largest private sector union, Unifor, represents about 315,000 workers across Canada, including 41,000 at auto assembly plants and part suppliers. It was formed in 2013 by the merger of the Canadian Auto Workers Union and the Communications Energy and Paper Workers Union. It's in a transition period after the abrupt retirement of longtime leader Jerry Dias. Now the union has a new leader. Lana Payne becomes Unifor's second president and the first woman to lead the union. She won a contested election this month, promising new accountability measures, a more transparent approach to union decision making, and renewed focus on local input. I got a chance to talk with Payne this week about her plans for Unifor and the challenges it faces going forward. Here's our conversation. Lana Payne, welcome to Daily Drive. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. You know, uh, you're only the second president of Unifor um, after it was formed by the merger just uh, less than a decade ago. Um, but, you know, for the auto industry, you are the, the first woman to be president of the union representing auto workers in Canada or probably any major auto union. 
Do you think that's important? Does it say something about the changing workplace in the auto industry? It sure does, but it uh, you know it just says something about the changing world that we're in. I'm I'm sure on on the company side, you're also seeing uh, lots of women uh, taking on leadership roles there too. Whether it's in uh, GM or Ford or Chrysler, uh, we're we're certainly seeing women taking on leadership roles everywhere. And our workplaces are changing, uh, not just in the auto sector, but throughout uh, throughout the industrial uh, sectors uh, in Canada, and. Um, you know, I think it's about time our workplaces are changing. And I think my election obviously is a reflection of that. Our members were certainly uh, prepared uh, for change. And, you know, I think we're still counting when it comes to representation of women in leadership roles. And that's a reflection of the fact that women still place, you know, face barriers in workplaces, still face barriers in society. And until uh, we achieve full equality, uh, we'll continue uh, to count, uh, unfortunately, as women, you know, need to, to, to rise to the occasion and, and take on leadership roles throughout society. Mm-hmm. So you didn't come to Unifor through the auto side. It's safe to assume you'll be leading negotiations uh, for our audience, you know, that includes laborers as well as executives and plenty of other folks in the industry. Can you tell them a little about what you bring to the table and what, you know, what your uh, view of the industry is? Sure. Uh, I Actually, I have a, what you would call an unconventional path to leadership in our union, that's for sure. I uh, started out my working life as a journalist, uh, so I got lots of experience uh, learning of, about different parts of the economy in that job. And then uh, for about 30 years, I've been involved uh, with our union. I come out of the Canadian auto workers side of Unifor, worked for about 17 years with fisheries workers throughout Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, got a lot of experience there, including around pattern bargaining, which of course is what we do uh, in the auto sector as well, and then uh, led an organization, uh, the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor. So I have a broad uh, range of, of background and uh, perspective to bring uh, to the bargaining table around auto. I did uh, participate uh, with our committees uh, during 2020 bargaining, which was a really critical uh, point for our union. Uh, No doubt about it that that led uh, to what we're seeing happening right now uh, in the transition to EVs. And Canada is certainly well positioned to be able to, to take advantage of this transition at the moment. Uh, We've seen a lot of interest, uh, obviously, because of our work as a union uh, from governments and from the sector as well. You know, when you consider the fact that we have uh, an ability to build jobs all across the supply chain here, uh, just uh, this week, uh, for example, uh, the chancellor from Germany was here and we saw, you know, German automakers interested in our critical minerals in Canada. The key here, uh, which is the key always, is that when you have an industrial strategy for any sector, including our auto sector, which is so important, and we just launched what we believed, you know, needs to be an important uh, industrial strategy for auto, it, it means taking advantage of the development of these minerals, but that we're value adding in Canada and not just uh, shipping out minerals uh, so that other uh, countries can get good jobs from them, uh, that we need to build those good jobs here in Canada. So I'm glad you mentioned the policy and the shifting supply chains of the auto industry. I'm curious what your plans are for organizing the battery and other plants that are affiliated with, but not owned outright by the Detroit Three, like the Stellantis LG plant being built in Windsor. 
for sure. Well, I think it's important when you consider the fact that we are Canada's auto union. We represent more than 40,000 workers in the sector, whether it's in assembly plants or auto parts. Uh, We're well positioned to be able to represent uh, uh, working people in battery plants and cathode plants. You know, we have the expertise and obviously we would be uh, in a in a well-positioned place to be able to attract workers to our union from those facilities, uh, but also having conversations with employers around making sure that that happens too, whether it's recognition agreements or whatever the case may be. Our our goal here is is to organize in the sector and make sure that we're creating good jobs throughout the supply chain. And uh, obviously good jobs means uh, unionized jobs. Is the effort to organize new plants like that benefiting? Is it have a benefit from the momentum that organized labor seems to have these days in the economy broadly? For sure. We're seeing it across many sectors that, you know, there is a, a new interest in unions uh, that, that comes from a couple of factors coming out of the pandemic. I think we saw, you know, almost a redefining of the importance of work uh, being done by frontline workers, but all workers really. And now we're in a high inflation moment. Workers need unions to be able to to bargain with employers and, and make sure that they're uh, maintaining living standards. Uh, that's true of the auto sector too. And uh, we don't see this changing anytime soon. But obviously, we feel that we're in a, a very good position to be able to continue uh, to organize new workers throughout the supply chain and to be able to take advantage of, of this EV moment that we're seeing ourselves in. Would it also, is it possible, is it a goal for Unifor in this moment to try to organize a Japanese assembly plant like Toyota or Honda in Canada? Well, we continue to have an interest in those facilities, that's for sure. Uh, we continue to, to leaflet and talk with workers, uh, particularly in the in the Toyota plant, and we'll continue to do that. There are no shortcuts here. I, I say this to our members all the time. Organizing involves, you know, just sticking with it, staying, staying with it, pushing the envelope as much as you can, looking for windows of opportunity, uh, which we certainly have now. There is a, definitely a renewed interest in, in workers wanting to be part of unions throughout North America. Is your strike fund or I guess strike and defense fund is the terminology you use? Is it, is it healthy? How's it stacked up compared to uh, historical standards? Our strike and defense fund is pretty healthy. I think it's about $145 million uh, right now. Uh, for sure, what we have been seeing particularly in 2021 and again this year is renewed worker militancy. You're, pro- you're seeing that in the United States as well. We had more disputes in 2021 in Unifor than any other uh, year since our founding in 2013. And that's continued on into 2022 as this issue of high inflation and workers trying to maintain living standards are spilling over in every single uh, collective bargaining table that we have at the moment. The disputes are not necessarily long, but they are sending a signal of the temperature of, of the mood of workers. And, and that is, is that workers are fighting back and, you know, they're seeing corporations doing really, really well. And they're just saying enough is enough. We've got to get our piece of the economic pie right now. And we have an opportunity to be able to do that with a tightening labor market and with high inflation. Here in Detroit, where I happen to be based, the UAW has had this um, ongoing, uh, really devastating and pretty devastating corruption scandal. They have a federal monitor in now, and he's has multiple investigations ongoing into other elements of the behavior of the leadership. 
with Unifor, is the Jerry Dias investigation all over? Are there any ongoing investigations into other alleged corruption or kickback schemes? I think the difference here is you consider how our union handled this. We had a complaint. We uh, hired an outside investigator, a a specialist in in these kinds of things to give us a report. We brought it to our national executive board and we took a, a decision, a very, you know what most people would say, a hard decision, but what we felt was necessary. We need to be Uh, transparent and accountable to our members. And that's exactly what we've done. I think uh, my election is a reflection that uh, our members, you know, appreciated the way that we handled that. And we're not done. Uh, We are, we have an internal task force that we're setting up with an independent chair. That task force will look at all of our protocols and policies and procedures. And, you know, do we need to have more best practices? Are there other things that we need to do around our code of ethics? Do we need other constitutional changes? We're not done yet. I think that the difference here is when you consider basically when you're handled or, or dealt with a problem like this, it's what you do with the crisis. It's how you handle it coming out. And for me, uh, at that time, being the second top officer and having this kind of, you know, dumped in my lap, for lack of a better expression, uh, there was only ever one way to deal with it. And that was to have an investigation, to report out to our members, and then to be able to say, okay, what else can we do here? Unions always have a target on our backs. We confront power. And, and as a result, we have to make sure that we are the best union that we can be. And that means being transparent and accountable with our members and, and to remove as much as we can those kinds of targets from our backs. And I think the other thing in my election campaign, I also promised that we would appoint an independent integrity officer so that going forward, they can continue to look at how we can improve, uh, report out to our members, uh, you know, if we have any breaches on our code of ethics, that this is, you know, being reported out in a proper way and that we're dealing with any issues and be upfront about it. Do not, uh, you know, hiding things or sweeping them under the carpet uh, does not help. We're not a union that's going to be doing that. Looking ahead to next year, Unifor and the UAW will be negotiating at the same time with the Detroit Three. Jerry Dias had clearly thought this would be advantageous, uh, but it's also risky, isn't it? I mean, won't, it seems to me like the two unions would be pitted against each other and and you're the smaller of the two. How do you see it and how do you hope to, I guess, make it an advantage for yourself? Well, every advantage has a risk to it, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's the reality of the world that we live in. I think it's important from a a couple of perspectives. It means that we have to up our game, uh, no doubt about that. It means that we have to have ongoing dialogue with the UAW. I mean, as a union, we have way more in common uh, with the workers of the United States than we do with our employers. So I think it's important uh, that we're we're talking with each other, uh, that we keep the communications open uh, with our sisters and brothers with the UAW, and and that'll be our plan going forward for sure. Are there limits on how you can discuss things in the run-up and actually during the negotiations? I mean, the automakers aren't supposed to be talking to each other (laughs) during negotiations, right? Now, you don't want me to give away all my secrets, do you, right now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we will be keeping in touch and keeping a close eye on, on the progress for both unions and all three companies. Lana Payne, Unifor President, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks so much. And hope to talk again real soon. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer for his help on today's podcast. 
You can get the latest news on automotive unions, retail, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with the new CEO of the Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor, Alan Amici. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.